and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. Has Obama's, Obama's, has Biden's attempt, (laughs) (laughs) has, sorry, I'm obviously like channeling Biden here. Get your head in the space. we've moved past this era all right all right right. okay uh so i just go from the top hello and welcome to the world in 30 minutes the podcast on the events policies and ideas that will shape the world from the european council on foreign relations my name is mark leonard i'm director of ecfr and this week we're going to talk about eu china us relations One of the foreign policy priorities of the new US President Joe Biden is to work with allies on China. And for that reason, his team reached out to the European Union even before he was inaugurated. They were asking Europeans to go slow in reaching a comprehensive agreement on investment with China. But looking at these developments, it is maybe a good time to ask how possible this is going to be. I think that many in the administration were disappointed at the alacrity with which European leaders led by Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron pushed forward the agenda with China before Biden was even inaugurated. So what are the prospects of transatlantic cooperation on China? Has this plan already died before it started? Or Are we going to see the West reforged in a new understanding about how to shape the rising China and our approach towards it? Ready to share their assessment with us on these topics, I have an all-star cast. Janka Ertl is joining me from Berlin. She is head of ECFR's Asia program. And we also have Andrew Small, who is a Senior Transatlantic Fellow with the Asia Programme at the German Marshall Fund in the US, as well as Associate Senior Policy Fellow at ECFR. And he's come very recently back from Washington, where he was talking to lots of people about these issues. Thank you both very much for joining. Janka, why don't you kick us off? You were very actively involved in the debates around this comprehensive agreement on investment. What does it actually mean? Does it matter that Europeans didn't wait Is this a big deal in terms of uh, the possibilities of a transatlantic approach on China? I think deal is a good way to start because this was supposed to be an actual agreement, an actual investment agreement with a lot of substance in it. And that's the way the Europeans have started to negotiate it. The way that it turned out is that it has actually turned into some sort of a dirty deal now because it was the general agreement was concluded In the last week of December, between Christmas and New Year, it was kind of pushed. Um, So the politics around this were really shady. The politics around this were very questionable. Therefore, it's not really that much about substance of the Comprehensive Agreement on Investment, the CHI, as it has been termed as such, but more about kind of the, the optics around it, the politics around it, the way it has come about, which has weighed a lot more heavily in the debate, and which is why there was a lot of criticism, not only across the Atlantic, but also within Europe um, in terms of it being like really just the German or the Franco-German agenda and not much beyond that. So, Andrew, you wrote a brilliant commentary on our website on the matter. Why do you think China was suddenly ready to make concessions, which it hadn't been before? Because this is not suddenly there was a new idea. We've been negotiating for this for, for many years now. 
So it'd be interesting to, to hear why you think China was willing to make those concessions and, and how Kai is seen from Washington. So I think the reason, and I think we understand very well the reason that China was willing to, to make those concessions. And I think on the European side, it was understood very well why China was willing to make those concessions when it did. They hadn't been willing to make those concessions when leaders met earlier in the year, in September, October, November, still no progress initially. And then the election happens in the United States. And and do we know what those concessions are? Because Yanka was basically implying that we're a bit sketchy on the details, at least the likes of us. Maybe Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron know what these concessions were. Well, we still don't know all of the details. The annexes, the, de- the text has been released. The annexes still haven't, which have lots of the critical information in them. But there is also a strong belief that there were various side deals agreed and side understandings reached in some of these final negotiations, which took place in this rather peculiar format between Emmanuel Macron, uh, Angela Merkel and Xi Jinping. So we still don't know everything fully that has played out. And people were asked to sign off on the political agreement without actually having the access to, to, to the full text. So there are still a certain number of mysteries around this. And there are various uh, actors on the European side who are still sitting, waiting until they see the annexes before they reach a verdict on, on the substance of, of the deal, and still asking a lot of questions about what else was was agreed between the two sides. But what we do know is that on certain critical areas, market access, full playing field, a number of these things were agreed earlier in the year, and there had been progress by September. But I think the expectation, even going into November, was that we were still not going to get there by the end of the year. And every indication is that the Chinese side wanted to reach an agreement before the new administration came in and took office. We were in this kind of purdah window where the Biden transition team couldn't speak to European counterparts. And it was understood and explicitly framed in some of the internal texts that this was a window of opportunity for the EU, uh, that China wanted to push this agreement through during this period of time. And it's absolutely clear from any of the assessments that people had on the Chinese side, that this was about spiking the new administration's efforts at putting these kind of new coalitions together on China, the kind of united front that Biden has talked about, having very explicitly said that this would be a priority for the opening weeks of his presidency. And we saw that again, exactly the same kind of priorities and language around this in in Xi Jinping's speech at Davos this week. We know this was a serious concern for China, that the response to their behavior over the last year in particular, was starting to see some of these coalitions developing in nascent state, and that the new administration was going to make this a very explicit priority. So there was a real push at the end of the year to spike the most, I think, in many ways, the most significant and difficult part of that, which would have been an EU-US front on China. So I want to go into the substance of what the EU and the US should be agreeing on and how to move forward. But maybe before we do that, we can just dwell a tiny bit longer on why this happened and because it it is very striking that the person who was pushing this forward was not Gerhard Schröder somebody who believes in a multipolar world and you know has been worried about American power since uh, since he was rattling sticks on built on the walls of, of German government buildings in the 1970s this was Angela Merkel someone who in fact, back the Iraq war at the time when, when Gerhard Schröder was opposed to it, who is, you know, somebody who seems to be a kind of natural Atlanticist to, to her bones. So why was she pushing this forward? What was going on in her brain? How would she defend the decision that was made if she was on this podcast, Yanka? 
I really would like to hear on this podcast defending this decision. That would actually be super fun to do. And I would like to ask her personally what she thinks about it. But I think we have to go back to the fact that transatlanticism and even the staunchest transatlanticists in Berlin have taken quite a blow over the last four years. And that obviously the mood here is different from many other capitals around Europe when it comes to the United States and the potential for cooperation with the Biden administration. There's a lot of hesitation. There is a lot of trust that had been destroyed. There's a lot of rebuilding that has to be done in that front. So I think that um, in general, the level of hedging that is still going on is quite high. But there's another element to this that has absolutely nothing to do with the United States. That is that the end of the German council presidency was also a matter of legacy building for uh, Angela Merkel, who's leaving the chancellery this year in 2021. And the China agenda has always been very important. She was personally very, very much involved in getting this done. She wanted this signed and sealed and kind of agreed upon before she leaves office. She wanted this to be happening during the German council presidency. That's why it had to happen in that crazy week when no one else was paying attention. And this is why this is obviously also extremely beneficial for the German industry. I mean, this is it's it is really hard to say how exactly the Bulgarian GDP is going to benefit from the provisions of the CHI, but it's relatively easy to establish that large German industry is going to benefit from some of the provisions that have been agreed upon and that the German government has been pushing for for quite some time. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, we discussed this a bit in our podcast last week when we were talking about our polling on the transatlantic relationship. It strikes me that this is a massive vote of no confidence in American power rather than in American intentions. Because my sense is that if anybody was going to be happy to work with the US on this agenda, it was going to be someone like Angela Merkel, who, you know, instinctively would rather work with with Washington than, than not work with Washington and knows how difficult it is working with the Chinese. So the fact that she um, pushed forward regardless of it and thought that this was going to be a good legacy, I think, tells us a lot about the change in perceptions of Chinese power in in different European capitals. And it's something which would be worrying me a lot if I was coming into the into the White House and, and thinking about how to deliver on this strategy of working with allies. Can I just add, actually, on, on this as an immediate jumping off point? I mean, I think it is worth kind of understanding what the meaning of the Kai was in the context of, of what's going on in European China policy at, at the moment, because the Kai had this kind of peculiar status, which was, in one way, this was the single big cooperative piece that was kind of left over on, on, on the agenda. Everything had been loaded on this. The German presidency had put everything on, on this. If it had failed, then I think the sense was that the competitive and rivalrous elements would almost completely dominate the agenda. There was talk of never negotiating another serious text or agreement or of any sort with China in the coming period uh, if if this failed. So locking this in was also about preserving a kind of version of the EU-China relationship still that that she has wanted to to hold on to. So, that, I mean, there was a sort of internal EU-China logic to all of this in, in a period of time in which all the tide in kind of public opinion, parliamentary opinion, the views in Germany on, on China are all moving so far in, in a different direction from it. And so in, in some ways, kind of jamming this through was one of the last ways of holding on to this, this version of, of the relationship. And there is still the 
claim or that, that it will be possible to, um, given the substance of the agreement, go back to the new administration and, and it, that, that it's not inherently damaging to that. But I think the sense of, of, of wanting to preserve this cooperative space still and not have that lost as part of the legacy did feel like it played some kind of a, a, a role on, on, on this. This was the, the almost the last hurrah for that entire conception of the relationship still still existing at all. So I want to go back to you, Yanka, to tell us how we should be thinking about a new transatlantic relationship. But maybe just in the way, same way that we were dwelling a bit on was going through Merkel's mind and how she dealt with it. Be interesting to hear a bit about how Washington's dealt with it, because there is a sort of track record from the Obama administration of hearing that Europeans wanted to do something with the Chinese, not getting one's act together early enough and then making oneself look really weak by opposing it very loudly. And that was called the AIIB, where um, in the same way that Merkel, the kind of arch Atlanticist, ends up pushing Kai, it was the British government, the poodle nation that ended up um, signing up to the AIIB and undermining any attempt at at working together um, across the Atlantic on it. And the Obama administration spent its whole time just broadcasting its weakness and its inability to do anything about it and turned it into a massive PR coup for the Chinese at the time, rather unnecessarily, I think. This time, they they don't seem to be doing that. There was this tweet from Jake Sullivan asking for Europeans to consult with them, which was unusual, but it was a one-off. And I haven't heard a huge amount of criticism from from Washington. What lessons do you think they're taking from the AIIB thing, given that it's a lot of the same people who are around this time as well, not least uh, Kurt Campbell, who's going to be the mastermind for Asia policy in the White House? I'm not sure, and maybe Andrew can add to that a bit, in terms of what, what was going through their heads around this and whether this was really inspired by the AIB thinking. I think this is much more inspired by a huge change in the geopolitical environment, by a huge change in the, the, the self-perception of American power and the understanding of dealing with the China challenge that is the non-military China challenge, the trade economic technology challenge, and a clear understanding that the last four years have demonstrated that the United States will need its allies and partners to actually deal with this in a constructive and productive fashion. And this understanding, I think, also is kind of motivating this huge during the election campaign to say we need to work with allies and partners. This is not the same kind of we need to work with allies and partners that the United States have been saying for a long time and then actually expecting that to be U.S. leadership and the others following. This is a new kind of idea as well that is very much informed by the understanding that there is a limited, there's limited potential for the U.S. to go it alone on these issues. So I think in that sense, we have reached a very weird moment of you know, a self-fulfilling prophecy moment here where the United States is actually wanting to reach out to the allies, the allies not fully trusting, especially in Europe, the United States, and the US then, kind of the forces in the United States that were saying, well, you shouldn't trust the Europeans in the first place, kind of gaining up of the upper hand. And then in the end, you have a policy that is less ally-centric, um, that is more kind of traditional US foreign policy, and the Europeans can say, well, great, we knew it in the first place that they weren't different. So I don't think that, that this is really helpful, the way this has, the dynamic has emerged. So I think it's really important to drive that back. And I think uh, Biden administration has been really constructive in that regard, saying, well, this is not the end of transatlantic cooperation on China. It was obviously kind of weird in terms of the optics, but let's see where we can go from here. And I think this is also good. I I also see from the European side kind of toning the importance of the Kai down 
and kind of saying it is part of this overall broader China agenda that we're having. And it's just one part of that. It's not the silver bullet. We haven't even signed it yet. So I think that's kind of a, there's a rearrangement of, of the narrative as well. Now that one can actually talk to each other, can actually have direct conversations across the Atlantic about these issues. So now that we can talk to each other, what should we be saying? Just to add, I mean, I, because I think it is, I mean, as said in your, in your question before, I mean, we literally have Kirk Campbell, who was the kind of architect of the last big push on the EU, US and Europe, US front during the Obama administration. I think it is really striking to see the degree to which the mindset has has shifted since then. And that we've kind of moved from a context in which Europe is understood to be kind of back then uh, 2010, that sort of period, as a sort of potential junior partner would be nice to have in various ways for the US role in Asia, to something now where the European role is understood to be much more central, given the nature of competition, the the, the way the competition with China is, is, is playing out. As, as, as Janka said, that economics and technology puts Europe in uh, a far more central role. And we've seen, and I think there's an understanding, not just from the US government, not just from the new administration, and even from the Trump administration, but from parts of US industry, unilateral US power is insufficient for this, that you need to do the coalition politics. And that, to go to your question, does put Europe in an interesting place at the moment. This is not a, here is an agenda that has now been fixed in Washington by the new administration, where the US is now going around saying, you know, here is our list of things, we would like you to sign up to this. This is framed at the moment as genuinely consultative process in the early stages to figure out what sort of framework is possible for a more ally coalition based set of approaches to China virtually across the board on a whole series of different fronts, trade, technology, security, multilateral institutions, industrial policy. I mean, you can just go down an extremely long list on that. Uh, Now, the approach on the European side, there is a version and we've, we've seen general proposals on the transatlantic from the commission and so on back in December. There's still a nervousness about about this kind of junior partner view on, on, on China, that people are going to be kind of corralled into the current US strategy on China. And I actually think there's more of an opportunity to shape not just what might be possible on the transatlantic front by way of cooperation, but kind of a wider ally-based, coalition-based framework on China, including important elements of of US policy itself. And I I think there is this kind of defensiveness about what this might amount to at the moment. And we can go through a list of uh, European interests might be and European asks might be and areas of where joint leverage will be be useful on the trade front, on connectivity, on a series of other things. But I think also there is a a chance right now to shape the totality of the framework within which a number of coalition partners approach China, including the US itself. Why don't we do that? Because I, I think it'd be very interesting to have a bit of a mapping exercise. I mean, obviously, we don't have a huge amount of time left, but but it would be good just to get a sense of what the big baskets are, where our interests are very well aligned with Washington and those where some talking is going to need to be done because there there's a less than perfect alignment and, and things which could end up being complicated in it as we move into these discussions. Yanka, do you want to have a go at that? Yeah, let me take like, I'll take two and then we can kind of add on to that. So the first one is obviously China's state capitalist economy and its role in the world economy, the market distorting factor that China has, this, you know, take from the home market advantage that it uses to the uh, ability to uh, deconstruct the entire supply chain, the way that China is c- competing unfairly against other players. This is a concern that Europeans have, that Americans have, where joint leverage can actually change Chinese policy or actually has 
the potential to change Chinese policy. And the second basket would be the climate agenda, where we've had now some commitments from the Chinese side that have been committed to carbon neutrality by 2060. But that will obviously need to be followed up. And there is a real competitive economic agenda behind this, who will write the rules of the game, who will dominate green technologies, who will be profitable under the conditions of decarbonization. These are elements where a joint US-EU approach could definitely shape China's agenda or uh, force China's hand to a certain degree, and where that actually has a huge impact on on how the whole climate emergency can be dealt with. So this is in huge joint interest. And I just add, there's two kind of categories in all of this. This is what can you do about China directly? And this how far does China recondition other areas of cooperation? And I think that some of the discomfort on the European side is about the China stuff directly, effectively the counter-China agenda. Um, but there are all of these other areas, whether it's data, data and privacy rules, technology regulation, standard setting, WTO agenda, industrial policy cooperation, development finance. There are a whole series of these questions that basically look very different in a context in which China is the power that both sides are competing with very significantly. And so I, I think one of the, the, the big pieces of this is, is just how much some of the areas of the transatlantic agenda that had been kind of deadlocked on minor differences that feel significant, how far it would be possible to kind of bridge those differences in light of the China challenge. And in some ways, that's the kind of agenda that the commission laid out in December. A lot of the areas of of cooperation that have been suggested are actually not directly China related at all. I mean, they're they're traditional areas of cooperation, but the thinking on, on the US side does look different on many of these questions, precisely for for China-related reasons. So there are all the kind of obvious pieces on investment screening and export controls and and there's cooperation in multilateral institutions on something that does look more like a counter-agenda. I mean, there's a very, very long list that we're going to be sitting down and talking about really literally in the next few weeks, I expect, to come up with kind of an overall map of, of what this looks like. But I, I think the important thing is, is really to push it beyond the, the bits of the agenda that I think some on the European side are less comfortable with, just the what do we do to counter China in these spaces to the area that is, you know, what is the positive sum offer from the United States, Europe, and the other partners on this? Japan is centrally involved, India is centrally involved, um, a number of other states in in Asia are going to be centrally in, involved in this. There's going to be a number of overlapping coalitions really on on this. And so there will be just a different kind of plurilateral framework in, in a number of these areas that probably ends up being framed. But where it does actually, I think, for a number of the other states, not just the, the, the US, I think being seen to be, to a certain degree, serious on the China agenda and to a certain degree like-minded on important elements of, of the China agenda will make a difference to the quality and scope of cooperation. Um, that will be true for India, it will be true for Japan, it will be true for the United States, it will be, it'll be true for others as well. And back to the original point, that's been the costly thing about the Kai that people have gone back to some very old questions about the seriousness of, of Europe on China front, all of the old suspicions have kind of resurfaced as a result of that. And so there is going to be some damage limitation required if we're going to be able to be seen as and, and work to, to frame that much bigger agenda that I, I think actually people on the European side do want to pursue. You're saying that as if Kai was an accident, but what you said about Kai at the beginning was that that was a deliberate attempt to make sure that you had a kind of balanced policy which involved engagement as well as competition. How upset will Europeans be if they're not seen as being particularly serious on that, given particularly that our opinion polling and our 
talks to a lot of different governments shows that though I think Europeans have come quite a long way in recognising the competitive elements of the agenda, certainly compared to where we were a couple of years ago, there's been a huge geopolitical awakening, I think, about the China challenge in uh, right across the EU. But most people probably do want to land somewhere where you have a, a twin track relationship with some engagement, quite a lot of engagement, as well as competition and not being dragged into what in some capitals is still seen as, as Cold War 2.0. Firstly, the new administration's agenda looks a lot more like something that is compatible with with the European one anyway. It isn't that there are going to be no cooperative areas. It's just that the competitive pieces need to be taken seriously. So, I mean, I I think this is not the Trump administration approach. If you look at every element of the new administration's critique, there is a much better match on these things. But the reason they're doing this is also because... I mean, the US has now recognized the limits of what they can do alone on the areas where they need leverage on China. At the moment, the European approach, including on the client, is to pretend that either there is the capacity for European leverage alone on this, or effectively to free ride, which is what happened with the CHI, on the collective pressure that China was experiencing on this to strike a bilateral deal. I mean, the only reason, as we've discussed, that the CHI was able to be signed was because of the nascent coalition that was building on this. So Europe still needs to do the coalition building piece of this seriously if it wants to pursue some of the areas of all the other pieces on on, on the China agenda that, that it cares about. I just want to add, you know, the fact that this didn't land well in D.C., and that this wasn't foreseen to a large degree in Brussels is already frightening. This didn't land well in Japan and that this didn't land well in India either is something that at least in, it should sink in on the European side that while you know we may have thought with good intentions that this was a good idea, that we have failed to read the room properly and if not fail to kind of wait and consult and all of that, at least fail to communicate about this in a way that didn't kind of confront the people that we want to work with um, on all sorts of other issues in a way that kind of rubs them up the wrong way. But just to be devil's advocate for a second, the last time that Europeans were taken seriously by Americans on China was when they talked about lifting the arms embargo on China. It was a bit of a struggle even getting Kurt Campbell to talk to Europeans about China before they did that. And actually, it launched a a period of major engagement. Kurt spent a huge amount of time in Europe, more than he probably ever spent before as a result of the arms embargo questions, both as a think tanker and then as, as an official. If you were really serious about having a proper transatlantic approach where Europeans had a role which wasn't just about being a Greek chorus, isn't this exactly the way that you'd set it up by showing the Americans the dangers of not talking to Europeans first, showing them that they need to align their interests and their approach with Europeans if they want to put real pressure on China and doing it in a way which leaves the door open to you to to change the terms on it because this has not been ratified and has not been properly signed yet. But we can whine a lot about not being taken seriously or we could actually behave in a way that would make us be taken seriously. And that means to have a really long term geopolitical view about these issues and not cash in on short term economic gains. I think that's the bottom line of this deal. This is not getting you anywhere geopolitically if you want to actually do serious work with serious partners in shaping a world that you want to kind of have your economies prosper in. The arms embargo shredded trust on anyone working on US Asia policy on the European position for a very, very long time afterwards. 
Kirk Campbell himself, when he was going out to do these engagements in Europe several years later, was still having to deal with the fallout in the State Department and in a bunch of other places, including with Hillary Clinton, a secretary who didn't understand why, given the Europeans were so feckless and untrustworthy and had been willing to lift the arms embargo, why this should be pursued at all. And I think this is comparable to more to the arms embargo incident than it is to the AIIB, which made sense. I mean, there were lots of reasons why it made sense for the Europeans to to join the AIIB. More consultation at certain moments would have been helpful, but I think that was a very defensible decision. This is back into the the sort of zone of trust shredding. And I mean, again, I I think the notion that it should be dealt with within the framework of being a Greek chorus is, is precisely the opposite of the way that the administration is now approaching this. Though I think there is this fear. I mean, there is this fear that it's again about being a plus one to US policy. And that fear is then also meaning that rather than going into this serious opportunity to shape the framework properly, it's being approached with this partly defensiveness and then partly with the Kai, a incredibly damaging move in terms of the trust going into all of these talks. And again, not just with the US, but with all of the other partners who are in who are going to be engaged in this process over the next year. Okay, I think we've got to a very interesting place in the conversation. So maybe I can just give you both one last opportunity to having gone large on everything that Europe has done wrong. If European leaders were going to play their cards brilliantly over the next few months, the first few months of an operational Biden administration, what would they do? So I would say they play down the importance of the CHI. They engage in heavy communication now, do the things that they lined up in the European Commission's communication, which is quite an like attractive and intelligent and smart agenda for the future shape of the transatlantic relationship, put an emphasis on the things that really matter also to European voters, including climate change, and just really press hard on kind of really engaging in this shaping moment, using the window of opportunity that is there because I think that it will close at some point in time if it's not utilized fully. I would add, I mean, a lot of this is still about what good European China policy looks like as well. This is bad European China policy. So I think beyond the transatlantic front, though the implications for the transatlantic front, pushing ahead with all the other pieces of the agenda that had maybe been a little, proceeded a little bit more slowly uh, in the last period of time than, than would have been helpful, will be one of the helpful counteractive things on this. There are various bits of, of Europe's economic toolkit that can, there are various things that can be expedited in terms of the existing plans that are there. There are huge pieces of the agenda when it comes to, for instance, connectivity, which have been slowed down. I think there are going to have to be some sort of, if the CHI is banked as the cooperative piece, then a number of the more competitive elements of European policy really need to be sharpened up. And these will then be tools that one can go to the US and others and say, look, here are the things that we've been able to move ahead with. Some of these are going to be, it will be possible to do interesting and significant joined up policies on these that are extremely constant with with European interests. There are areas where Europe's actually been even bolder on things like use of competition policy that's being proposed, for instance, to deal with Chinese subsidies than anyone else has. This isn't something where Europe needs to be on the back foot. It's possible to go to others and push them to get their instruments further in in line, the US, Japan, and and, and others too. But to do that needs a much more kind of forward-leaning approach on the other pieces of the agenda that Honestly, the German presidency did not do as much as they should have done in parallel to the big push that they made on the Kai. Wow. Okay, well, lots more material for future podcasts as we go forward on this. I got one thing left to do on this podcast, which is the bookshelf segment. Yanka, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? 
Well, because I'm in homeschooling mode here, as many people I think across Europe are, I will suggest a children's book that I'm reading to my kids at the moment. It's called Thousand Year Old Boy by Ross Welford. And I think it's probably the most uplifting story I've ever heard of someone trying to finally grow old and end an eternal life because it's just much more fun to be mortal. So everyone that really wants to read to their kids, this is really highly recommended. Okay, what about you, Andrew? I am just looking at Lan Xinxiang's new book, which is basically an argument that European and, and Western policy and relations with China went wrong after the Jesuits, which is a slightly wider sweep of history within which to think about this relationship. So I'm in early days on this, but that's what I'm embarked on right now. Okay. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do give us a positive rating or review on whatever platform you've used to download the podcast on. We put links up to all the publications that we mentioned on our website, which is ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, from Yanka Ertl, Andrew Small, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal, and our editor is Marlene Riedel. 